0: you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Psalm 51? To Psalm 51. Psalm 51 was likely forged through David's tears as he prayed there at the bedside of his son, watching him die as a consequence of his own sin. And so the story that we've been telling about David's sin and Nathan's confrontation and ultimately David's brokenness culminates... Into Psalm 51, so that we're able to see what he felt, what he, what he thought, how he prayed, and how he responded. Let's read it together. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good design and your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, then bulls will be offered on your altar. Let's pray to the Lord together this morning. Heavenly Father. Lord, we hear what David is saying, and David is agreeing with the hymn we just sang. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. That the hope that any of us have, as we are corrupted to the core, is to enjoy your mercy. Your powerful, life-changing mercy. Lord, help me to remember this morning that I have no power in and of myself to draw a man or woman to repentance. Only you can do that. Only the Spirit can convict us of our sins. And I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would do just that. I pray, Father, that today the salvation of many, the joy would be restored, that their zeal for you would return. Lord, I, I pray for those that are trying to self-medicate and self-ride and make amends for all of the things that they've done wrong, that today, O oh Lord, that they would see what a hopeless exercise that is, and instead they would cast themselves upon your mercy and grace, your steadfast love, so that they could be regenerated. Father, I ask you, O oh Lord, that you would say exactly what you have to say, that you would show us exactly what you have for us to see, and that you would speak to our hearts directly. And We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So today is Super Sunday, and as a big football fan, it's a day that always stands out in my mind. But funny enough... One of the Super Bowls that stands out the most to me is one that I didn't even have the opportunity to work. It was back in 2004, and I was working at Winn-Dixie in Jacksonville at the time. And being low man on the totem pole, I got the Super Bowl shift, you know. And I remember being there, and it was a slow night because, you know, everybody that has a life is at home watching the game, right? Everybody that has friends and not there running a register at Winn-Dixie was was at home and uh, eating hot wings and road tail dip and laughing at all the commercials but, but I remember when halftime was over, there was this explosion into the store of men. Now, it was in Jacksonville, and so we're pretty close to all the frat houses, and it was that type of fellow that came bursting through the doors, and they were all laughing and being loud and carrying on, and they were talking about what had just happened in the halftime show. And if you'll remember what happened in 2004, that was the year that the term wardrobe malfunction came to the forefront. And so you had Justin Timberlake and Janet Jackson, and they had an unfortunate mishap, uh, perhaps, there with their clothing. But if you remember what happened in the aftermath of that, there was all of this... PR work that was being done by Janet Jackson's crew and Justin Timberlake's crew and the Super Bowl and the NFL trying to kind of go into damage control and, and crisis management over everything that had happened. And, and really, Janet Jackson's going on all the talk shows. She's trying to, to, to make everything okay. But everyone is accusing her that she had done this intentionally. And really, her, her career was in a tailspin. And what was ironic at the time is she and Timberlake were supposed to be close friends. This is I know this is way too much E for all of y'all this morning. Way too much TMZ. But I'm bringing y'all together, right? Stay with me. Stay with me. But she and Timberlake apparently were close friends, but he never said anything. He was just quiet the whole time. And so everybody was just waiting. What's Timberlake going to say? When's he going to come and defend uh, Janet Jackson and make it clear that this was unintentional and all of those things? And the first time that he spoke was at the Grammys, when he was receiving the Grammys. And it went something like this. And those was Justin Timberlake way of all time. uh uh y'all uh I'm I'm sorry if y'all were offended. Uh What a lame apology is that? Y'all, is there anything that makes you feel sleazier than read than watching a politician or celebrity with a handwritten apology reading it mindlessly as though they obviously believe anything other than what there's I'm so sorry, your feelings were hurt. If you were offended, I apologize. There's nothing that feels sleazier than that, right? A non-apology is the worst. But it hurts a lot more when it's personal, doesn't it? It hurts a lot more when it's personal. When you see Justin Timberlake do it, when you see a, a politician do it, it's almost what you expect. You expect them to spin it, but when your husband does it, when your wife does it, When your best friend does it, when your pastor does it, when one of your connection group teachers does it, it wounds you and it hurts you because we can see past that fakeness. We can see past that feigned repentance and we we begin to understand that what they're attempting to do is just image control. They're just trying to spin it so that we'll feel better about what they did wrong when really there's no contrition or remorse on their side at all. And we've seen both versions of this with David at this point. We've seen what David left to his own devices will do. We've seen how he will handle his own sin. But now here in Psalm 51, what we're able to glimpse is what true repentance actually looks like. So that we can see what the difference is between a non-apology and true brokenness before God. The kind of brokenness that God receives and the kind of broken person that God restores and the kind, of, the kind of broken heart that God renews and regenerates so that they're able to be fully restored into the fellowship of God. And so what I want us to see this morning is from Psalm 51, the nature and the shape of true repentance. And what I want you to do is I want you to to measure your own repentance by what we see here from David. Because I believe that what the Holy Spirit is doing in Psalm 51 is holding up for us a mirror to look in so that we can see whether or not our repentance has been true, whether our repentance before God is sincere, whether or not our hearts are clean. First thing I want you to see this morning is that true repentance doesn't manipulate True repentance doesn't manipulate. So something that a lot of you uh, may not know about me is that my undergraduate degree is actually in public relations. So I have a PR degree, all right? And let, let me tell you what the majority of PR is. The majority of PR is image management, right? Is You want to have the right image of your company, of your corporation before the public. You want to have the right relationship so that, that you're viewed in a positive light. So, so that's why a lot of the times it's PR when you go and you try to do, give generously to some foundation within the community or you try to go and build a park. or What you're attempting to do there is to foster goodwill between your company and the community so that you're viewed not as a greedy corporation but as a philanthropic cause, Right? That's why, if you ever see a company issue like a, a, an urgent or a bad news press release, like you see somebody out there and he's talking, what you see is usually the kindest looking, most polished, sharp, um, well spoken, likable, pearly white, shining, hair just like he likes. It looks like you would want him to be your next door neighbor kind of guy. Because what do they want? They, they don't want you to see them as a faceless corporation. They want you to see them as someone with whom you can sympathize. Someone with whom you can relate. Someone that you'll find forgivable. Someone that you'll find to be uh, be likable, that you you want to be okay with. In other words, it's all image management. That they're doing all of these things so that you'll have a particular image of of who they are. And, And what have we seen with David? What we saw with David in the beginning is the reflex of sinners when caught in the act of sin. Is what we see in David is we see him go into PR mode. That he he begins this cover-up and this concealment of this great sin in his life. Why? Because he is more concerned with his image than he is with being holy. Why do we cover up our sin? It's the same reason, isn't it? It's the same reason. We cover it up because we're concerned with our image. We cover it up because we want to put the right spin on it so that everybody will not think too lowly of us. We want to put the right spin on it so that that people will empathize with us and so that people will find us likable and forgivable. We we want it to to look look like we're contrite perhaps at times, but but not not, not too guilty, not, not too sinful. And there's a danger inherent there. That when we talk about repentance, even in a morning like this, that there is a view that you can have of repentance in which repentance becomes a form of damage control in your life. Where repentance becomes a form of, of crisis management where, where when you're caught red-handed doing something and you know that your wife knows or you know that your parents know or you know that your friends know. That you'll you'll repent just enough, just enough so that they can feel better about it, so that they'll find you to be more Uh, They'll find you to be humble and contrite, but not so much, not so much that you come full-throated and unabashed about what you've done and the sins that's in your life, that there's less than ownership of your sin. And what we see in David is the exact opposite of that in Psalm 51. What we see in David's life is a mark of true repentance, that true repentance is marked by the ownership of your sin. Look at what David says there. In, verse, in the first three verses, he, has, he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Now look at this. Blot out whose transgressions? My transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. So you have here five times in two verses, G, uh, David is here and he's taking ownership of his sin. He's saying, This is mine. This is what I have done. This is what I have to answer for. This is what I am guilty of. This is mine. It's not all he says. Notice also that there are three different times, there are two, three different words in the Old Testament that are used to describe sin. They're all different words. That are, they're used in different times and in different ways to describe maybe different degrees of sin at different times. But David uses all three of these words that are used in the Old Testament for sin to describe his sin. See what he says? He says, Blot out my transgressions. There's one. And then he says, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. I know it's getting a little a little unclear there. And then he says, cleanse me from my sin. And there's the third time. And there's a sense and this is what David said. I've done it, and I've sinned in every way that a person can sin. I've sinned in every conceivable way. If you can think of it, I've done it. If you, can, if you can imagine something heinous, I'm guilty of it. You think of murder, I did it. You think of adultery, I did it. You think of lying, I did it. You consider blasphemy, I did it. I've done it all. I am guilty before the Lord. See, this is the opposite of what we're often guilty of. What is David not doing? David isn't blame shifting, is he? D- David isn't playing the victim card. D- David isn't looking for a scapegoat. David isn't looking for a way to put spin on it so that his sinfulness doesn't look worse than it actually is. What David says is, I did it. It's mine. I have to answer for it. I have to go before the Lord with it. I have to humble myself and elevate and acknowledge before God and all of his people that I am as messed up as a messed up person can be. Now, I wonder how you're doing with your sin. In your sin, are you finding ways to make yourself the victim? In your sin, your are you finding ways to shift the blame so that everyone's not looking at you? Are you finding ways to do damage control so that it doesn't sound quite as bad as it actually is? Can I tell you something? That you will never find freedom from your sin until you take ownership of your sin. You will never find freedom from your sin until you take ownership of your sin. That what repentance requires, the kind of repentance that leads to salvation, the kind of repentance that leads to restoration, is the kind of repentance that stands before God and says, I am guilty as charged. I have done it all. I I need your intervention because this is my sin and my problem, and it's insurmountable. That's not all we see in David, though, is it? David takes ownership of his sin, but not only does David take ownership of his sin, David sees his sin as bad as it actually is. Look there at verse 4 with me. It says, against you, and who's he talking about? He's talking about God here. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil, he's not minimizing it, in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless. Don't you think about that. In your judgment. Now, this is an interesting thing that David says here. David looks before God and he's owning his sin and he says, God, against you and you only have I sinned. Now that's confusing, isn't it? Because didn't David rape Bathsheba? Didn't David kill Uriah? Didn't David cause uh, Joab to come in complicit, become complicit with his sinfulness? didn't, Didn't David initiate a cover up that was filled with lies? This seems to me like there's a lot of people here that David has sinned against. Is this David's cop out? Is this his way of over-spiritualizing the conversation so that he doesn't actually have to own it before Bathsheba? No, this is David doing the exact opposite of that. David is not minimizing his sin. He's heightening his sin. Here's what David is saying when he says, against you, against you, God, and you only have I sinned. He's saying, I am not just guilty of all these sins against my fellow man. I am not just guilty of sins that affect my standing here on the earth. What I am guilty of is the greatest of moral evils. What I am guilty of is I am guilty of sinning against the God on high, of attempting to usurp your sovereignty and live as though I am sovereign. Remember how, what we said? He was trying to manipulate the people in his life. He was trying to manipulate the circumstances in his life. He was trying to orchestrate all things through this cover up so that he ultimately was the one that was in control. That what David was doing was living as though God were not there and God were not on the throne and he did not—he was not answerable to God. And this is David's way of standing before God and saying, yes, yes, I am guilty of all that and more here on this earth. But ultimately, I am guilty of the greatest of all moral evils I have tried to overthrow and dethrone the God of all God's the Lord of all lords, the one to whom every king will bow down. And I tried to act as though I was in charge of all of these things. And so David says, David says, against you, you only have I sinned. And this is what he says. This, this is powerful. He says, You would be justified, you would be blameless in your judgment to send me to hell. Have you ever prayed like that? Have you ever prayed like that? You remember when Nathan comes and he has to tell the parable. Why? Because David is oblivious to his sin. He didn't see the scope of his sin. He didn't see the severity of his sin. He underestimated his sin. He was oblivious, minimizing it. You remember what he said to Joab? He told Joab, in minimizing his sin, he said, Joab, it's not that big a deal. Soldiers die every day. Uriah just happened to be the guy. We just kind of helped out Providence a bit. But not now. Now there is no minimization of the sin. There is no, no, I made a mistake. There is no mishap. There is no whoopsie. There is no boo-boo. There is nothing of that. It is I have sinned against God. I have sought to dethrone the holy ruler of all the universe, and I am guilty in what I deserve, what I rightly should receive, what you are justified in giving me, what you would be blameless to do with me, is to cast me out of your presence forever where there is no goodness. In your life right now, how are you minimizing your sin? If you are minimizing your sin, you are not truly repentant. If you're finding ways to justify it, if you're finding ways to feel better about it, if you're finding ways for it to be okay. For you cannot find freedom from your sin until you Realize the magnitude of your sin until you see your sin as severely as it actually is. You will not deal with it as severely as you must. But look at what else we see from David. David didn't just see his sin as it was. David realized, saw himself as he really was. Look at what it, verse five is a powerful. It is a doctrinally rich verse. David, it's, it's a reflection. Right? Behold! Look at it. Look at it. He's saying, "Look." I was brought forth, so he's talking here about birth, right? I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me. What's he talking about? Is he saying that his mother in some way had a sinful relationship with Jesse, his father? That's not what he's saying at all. What what David is saying is David is saying that from my birth, that this is not a new problem with me. That I didn't just become bad overnight. That the problem is, is that I have been bad to my core. That my sinfulness, my guilt before God, dates all the way back to my first breath on this earth. That I was conceived as a sinner. I was born as a sinner. My nature is as a sinner. And I just reflected my capacity for evil when I did what I did with Bathsheba. When I did what I did with Uriah. When I initiated the cover-up, that I just revealed the great capacity for evil in my life. The NIV makes this a little bit clearer. I like the way they translate it and get the sense of the verse. It says, surely I was sinful at birth. You ever wondered in the Bible, where is it when the Bible says that you were born a sinner? Well, David is praying it right here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Psalm 51. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. That there is a realization of who he is. There's a realization of the depth of the problem. There's a realization that David cannot initiate a self-rescue. There's a realization that there is something so corrupt in David's heart that gets to the core of who he is that God himself must come and intervene. I wonder right now, when it comes to your sin, if you're in the midst of a PR cover-up, I wonder if right now, in the midst of your sin, if your repentance is about damage control. It's about making your wife get off of your back. It's about making your kids think that you're a better wife, or a better mom, or a better dad, or a better husband than you actually are. It's about getting your parents to leave you alone. It's about getting your coworkers to to think that you're a man of honor one more time. Can I tell you that's that's not enough? Your repentance must not be about manipulation. Your repentance must be about transformation. It must be about coming before the Lord in transparency, owning your sin, realizing the depth and the severity of your sin, and the corruption of your own nature. That God that God might help you. That leads us to the second part that we need to see about true repentance this morning, and that is that true repentance hopes in only God. True repentance hopes in only God. I've mentioned this earlier, but I want to revisit it, that what we see in David is we see the two reflexes that come up in the life of someone who's caught in their sin, or who realizes their sinfulness. The unrepentant sinner initiates a cover-up. The the reflex of the unrepentant sinner is to try to cover it up as quickly as they can, as deeply as they can, and they pray to God that no one else will find out. They seek to figure out how to salvage their image in the midst of their sinfulness and their corruption. But that's not true repentance. What we see in David here in Psalm 51 is that it is the reflex of the truly repentant to confess their sins before God and his people. We see David doing that. He confesses his sin to God. We see that in the prayer. And he confessed his sin to Nathan. I am the man. I did it. I am guilty of everything that you have said. I am guilty of all of the sins and so much more, Nathan. And so what we're able to see is what this reflex is that is to look like. And I wonder what your reflex is. I wonder what your reflex is. Is your reflex to go with an unabashed, unfiltered confession of your sin to your brothers in Christ, to your sisters in Christ, to God himself? Or is it to conceal it? Because you see, it's the difference between worldly, worldly sorrow and true repentance. And it's the difference between managing your sin by the world system or by God's mercy. That's important for you to see. It's the difference between you trusting in the Lord or you trusting in yourself. See, why is it that David's reflex and why is it the reflex of every Christian who truly repents to go and to confess their sins to the Lord? He tells us there in verse 1, Have mercy on me, O God, according to what? Your steadfast love. That's that said word. If you've been with us for a while, we've talked about that and what all that means. According to your abundant mercy. Abundant mercy is actually one word, and it can mean literally from the bowels, from from what you feel inwardly, from your inward bones, from your very inward nature of who you are. In other words, David is drawn to the confession of his sins before God because he trusts in the character of God. Because he trusts that God is a God of steadfast love and that he is loyal to him and that he will not forsake his promise and he will not forsake his covenant and he will not forsake his grace. He comes and he he prays to him because he knows that deep in the core of who God is, God is merciful. He is abundantly merciful. He is generous with his mercy. He is overflowing with his mercy. And so here is David saying, I don't have to do damage control. I don't have to go into crisis management. I don't have to pretend like I'm better than I am. I can come before God and I can throw myself upon him because his nature, his character, his essence is filled with steadfast love. And abundant mercy. And so he says, I, I can forsake the systems of the world. I can forsake the systems of the world and hope in only God and God alone. And that's what we see beginning to, in, I, I wish we could go through all of the details, but in the intricacy of Psalm 51, that we, we see him beginning to unpack that. And, and I want you to see it in a couple of places, though. I want you to see, first of all, that, we, that what David did is he hoped in God's rehabilitation, not self-medication. He hoped in God's rehabilitation, not self-medication. Look at verse 8 with me. He says, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. And I appreciate this about David. David is not sugarcoating the pain that he's enduring at the hands of the Lord. He, he's not sugarcoating how, how hard the discipline of God has been in his life. He says, God, you you have brought consequences into my life. You have brought discipline into, into my life. And it has brought me pain, pain that, that is so physical. It feels as though my legs and arms have been broken in half. Now, how would the world deal with this? What, what, what's your natural way of dealing with this? The world deals with this with another glass of wine. The world deals with this with another pill to take. The world deals with this with another shopping trip to go on. The world deals with this with another trip out with the ladies. The world deals with this with getting up a little bit earlier and and working out a little bit more. The world deals with this by overworking and throwing themselves at success so that they can not look at it for a little while. They go deeper into their hobbies. They go deeper into their vices. They go deeper into their opportunities. Deeper into their ambitions. Hoping in some way to self-medicate. Every one of those opportunities were at in within David's grasp. David could buy anything that he wanted to buy. He could go and conquer any people that he wanted to conquer. He could drink as much wine as he wanted to drink. But what's the problem with the world's method? It addresses the symptom and not the cause. It addresses the symptom and not the heart. Because when when the drunkenness goes away, when the high comes down, when the shopping trip is over, when the vacation ends, when the end of the day finally comes, you're still there left to sleep through the night with yourself. And you're there with your own heart, you're there with your own guilt, you're there with your own shame. And all of the different methods that you've attempted, all of the self-medications that you've sought have fallen short to address what actually ails you. Address what actually keeps you up, what actually haunts you. And so here's what David says I need you to heal what's been broken. I need you to heal me from the inside out. I want you to think about what it would have been like to have a broken bone 3,000 years ago. There were no MRIs, there were no x rays, there was no reconstructive surgery, there were no state of the art uh, boots that you could put on your broken ankle. In other words, if you had a broken bone, you knew that you were at the mercies of God as to how you would heal. Your life was placed, you had a realization that your fate was in the hands of God. Your bone could heal up perfectly well and you could go on and live a long and normal life. Or you could grow and live with a deformity that would reduce you, once a virile warrior for the people of God, to a beggar on the street. And what's David saying? David's saying, God, I'm placing my fate in your hands. I'm not trying to control it anymore. I'm not trying to medicate it anymore. I'm not trying to fix it anymore. I can't fix it. I have a broken bone. My fate is in your hands. Oh, Lord, I ask you, I ask you that you would make me whole again. Where is your hope being placed right now for wholeness? What's your hope? Is your hope in another glass of wine? Is your hope in another pill? Is your hope in another shopping trip? Or is your hope in the mending power of the Almighty who heals his people from the inside out, who puts back together that which can't be seen, who brings healing to that which keeps you awake at night? Look, Keep looking. Verse 9. Verse 9, what we see is that David's hope was in God's restoration, not in making amends. God's restoration, not in making amends. Hide your face from my sins. What's he talking about when he says, hide your face? He's talking about shame. Remove my shame. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. What's he saying there? Remove my guilt. Remove my shame. Remove my guilt. Restore my fellowship with you, O Lord. Restore the the purity of my soul. Restore the purity of my spirit. Lord, make me something other than what I am. Now, that's not the world's way. And that's, may not, that's probably not the way that comes naturally to you. When we mess up, what do we think? There must be something that I can do to make it better. There must be something I can do to make you feel better about how I've just sinned against you. That there must be something that I can do that would impress God and and when the eye is and the ears of God that, that would cause God to finally look down and smile upon me. Again, there must be some way for me to make amends for all of the bad stuff that I've done. But what you have come to the realization of if you've been a Christian for any period of time or a sinner for any period of time and all of us have is that you can't unsin a sin. You can't unscramble an egg. You can't unsay a word. You can't unlive a life. You can't undo a thing. it gets back to understanding the scope and the severity of what you've actually done you can't fix it there's not enough soup kitchens to work in there's not enough presents that you can buy for your wife there's there's not enough things that you can do with your adult children that make up for what you didn't do when they were children but there is one there is one One who can remove the shame that you carry every day. One who can remove the guilt that you carry with you every day. There is one that doesn't look at the outside, but looks at the heart. There is one who receives broken and contrite hearts. There is one, and he is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, and he is coming after you with his mercy and with his steadfast love, and he is inviting you to himself. He's inviting you to himself that you would let him restore you that you would let him restore you. And as God begins to restore you from the inside out, what you'll be amazed to find is all of a sudden you're able to go and minister to your broken-hearted kids in a way that you never could. You're able to go and minister to your broken-hearted spouse in a way that you couldn't before. You're able to go and reconcile with friends in a way that you couldn't previously. You're able to deal with with the insidious, hidden temper that everybody doesn't see except your own family in a way that you couldn't before. Why? Because God is removing the source. He is removing your shame. He is removing your guilt. He is removing the resentment and the bitterness that are associated with them. Keep looking at verse 10. He says, create, create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Finally, what David what David believed is David hoped in God's regeneration, not his self improvement. You want to know what you need to do? Go and look at the bookshelves, and they are filled with self help books. Turn on a talk show sometime and you are not short on advice. The world tells you that all you need to do is wake up a little bit earlier and work out a little bit more and, and put your makeup on one more time and eventually, eventually it's all going to fade away. But you know that's not true. You know it doesn't work. You know it doesn't actually change you because it doesn't deal with the problem. So here's what David says. God, what I need is not, not new clothes, what I need is not image management. What I need is not for everybody to think that I'm a super guy. What I need, God, is I need you to create in my chest a new heart. Because my heart is corrupt to the, to, the, to the bone. My heart is corrupt from birth. I am, from the inside out, rebelling against you and running from you. And so what I need from you is I need you to create inside of me something that is different. A new nature, a new desire, new intentions. What's amazing about the word create here is this is the same word. If you go to Genesis 1-1, I have it there on the screen. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is the same word. Did you know this is the Hebrew word "mara"? And there is only one subject given with this verb throughout the entire Old Testament. It is God. Only God creates something from Nothing. Only God creates new things. Humans, we innovate. God, he creates. God takes nothing and makes everything. And so here's what David is saying. God, with the same power that you spoke the universes into being, with the same power that you brought calm over the deep, with the same power that you brought forth life and light and energy, with the same power, come inside of me and create in me a new heart. The the prayer of Psalm 51 is, as we saw in verse 1, have mercy on me, O God. And what we're supposed to understand is that David is, throughout the psalm, explaining what mercy would look like. He's thinking and and, and dreaming and envisioning what, what mercy would feel like. And we begin to understand what mercy is. Do you know what mercy is? Mercy is when the power of God which ought to destroy you is used by God to deliver you instead. See, it was the very same power. The power that spoke and created the universes. The power that made all things under the footstool of the Lord. The power that made everything accountable and answerable to God. It was that very same power which ought to have been God's wrath against David for his sin. Which he would be justified and blameless in his judgment. But instead, David is saying, no, 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 God. Channel your power through your mercy. And by your power, make me something new makes me think of a young man I had in my youth ministry a long time ago. He was sexually active and I got to meet him because he had gotten his girlfriend pregnant and they didn't know what to do and they ended up at the church. And over the course of time, this young man came to faith in Jesus, and he gave me the opportunity to to be able to ask him hard questions of accountability over the course of his life. And so one day, uh, several months later, after his conversion, I asked him, I said, said, man, tell tell me how you're doing in in the category of sex. Tell me how you're doing in terms of your physical purity. And what what he said that day has stuck with me until this very day. He said, Cody, something amazing has happened. He said, I don't see women the way I used to see them. And I don't want what I used to want in the way that I used to want it. He said, The only way I know to describe it to you is that God is restoring my purity. I'd never thought about God doing that before. But I'm telling you, there's hope in that, brothers and sisters. There's hope in that. Some of you, you think you're too far gone, you think you're too bad. You're trying to cover up because you don't know what else to do. And I'm telling you that if you will throw yourself at the mercies of God, that God is so mighty, that God is so sovereign, that God is so powerful, that through His power, His mercy can come into your life and make you into something entirely new. I wonder if the reason you've never confessed your sins to anyone is because you've never trusted anyone. The, The question that comes to us in Psalm 51 is will you trust the Lord? Will you trust the Lord? Jesus says of himself that I am gentle and lowly in heart. Come to me. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Come to me and I will give you rest. You can trust the Lord. You can trust the Lord. Next, I want you to see that true repentance returns home. True repentance returns home. That what we have in Psalm 51 We have David saying the exact opposite of what so many of us say. Most of us tell God we want him to butt out of our lives. We tell people who who come in and try to call us to Christ to butt out of our lives. But David is saying the exact opposite of that. David is saying, God, please interfere with my life. God, please intervene in my life. Come in and do something that only you can do, oh Lord. I need your interference and your intervention in my life if I am to have any hope. And he uses two different pictures. And, and I'll, I'll cover these quickly. But he uses two different pictures so that we can understand exactly what he has in mind. There in verse 7, he says something that doesn't register with us fully. He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be washed whiter than snow why would he say to purge me with hyssop that's a a strange thing because he understood that those that were in israel would have in their minds leviticus chapter 14 you know what happens in leviticus chapter 14 god tells his people how to deal with a leper in the nation so you would have a leper and they would be cast out of the fellowship of the of the temple They were not able to come in and to commune and have fellowship with with all of the the brothers and sisters. They were not able to come in and offer sacrifices. They were not able to, to join in with the songs of the congregation. They were excluded from congregational life and they were excluded from community life. They were on the outside looking in when it came to fellowship. And so over time, if, if God was gracious enough to heal them of their leprosy, there was a process that they had to go through so that they could be restored into the fellowship of the congregation. So they could be restored into the worship of the living God. And that process involved the, the slaughtering of a bird. And then they would take a hyssop plant. I have it down here in, in Leviticus 14. But for time's sake, I'm just going to tell you the story. They would slaughter the bird. And they would the hyssop plant, at the end of it, has a sponge-like uh, substance. And they would take the blood. And they would soak up the blood of the dead bird in that hyssop plant. And they would take it. And upon the leper, they would take And they would sway the and swing the hyssop plant. And it would, it would cover the once lepers, leper person in blood. And after a period of time, after being covered in blood, it was to show that their sins had been atoned for, that they had been covered in the house of the Lord. And over a period of seven, time, seven days, they would be covered in this blood, but then they would shave their head and they would wash their hands and they would, they would be restored and they would be declared clean. All this time, they went into a crowd of people. They had to declare unclean, unclean, unclean because nobody could touch them. And if they were to touch them, they were to be defiled. But now now, when they had been de- declared clean by the covering, by the provision that God had made in his law to cover them in that blood, now they were to be declared as though they had never been sick before. They were whiter than snow because of the covering of the blood. Do you see the picture? Do you see the picture? Here's David. And David is saying, I am like a leper in my sin. I cannot enjoy the fellowship of the Lord. I cannot enjoy the worship of the Lord. I cannot enjoy the fellowship of the congregation. What I need is God's provision of blood upon me that I might be washed by the hyssop, that the sin might be purged from me, that through the blood I might be made whiter than snow and restored into fellowship with God. And that bird... That blood, it was a foreshadowing. Because what power does the blood of birds have? None. But it was a foreshadowing, a prefiguring of the lamb that was coming to be slain so that all of us can bring, come as though we are lepers before Christ. But Christ has made an atonement on our behalf. that He has covered us in his blood. There's no atonement left for you to make. There's no atonement left for me to make. His atonement is perfect. And through Jesus, through the blood, we are declared clean, righteous. The residue of sin, gone. The remnant of sin, gone. The power of sin, overcome. The penalty of sin, removed. The wrath of God, satisfied. Why? Because we have been covered by the blood. It has been blotted out. It has been purged. There is no more guilt. There is no more shame. We are restored into fellowship with God. Then there's a second picture. He says, Cast me not away from your presence. Do you hear this longing? I want to be, I want to fellowship with you. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Think about how often David writes, He often writes in the Psalms like what he writes here in Psalm 46. God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in our trouble. Who was God to David? What we see in the Psalms time and again is that God was to David his stronghold. He was a fortress. He was a rock. He was a refuge. But now David, David's abandoned the refuge. He's left the stronghold. And he's trembling in his own vulnerability. He's trembling, realizing that he is exposed to the elements. He's exposed to the enemy. Many of you know that I love to camp. And I have spent a lot of nights outside in the woods under a tarp. Okay, And I have spent a lot of nights in the woods under a tarp in some pretty rough weather. And one of the things that I've come to realize is that you really take for granted how dangerous a storm is when you get used to your house. You begin to to, to fail to realize how dangerous it is. But when you're under a tarp, let me just tell you, you are well aware that you are one big branch from falling through your tarp and taking you out, man. And you're there under that tarp and the wind is blowing and the trees are swaying and, and branches are crashing to the ground and lightning is striking and there's nowhere for you to go. And all you can think about is getting home. Is getting home, getting back where it's safe, getting back where you had cover, getting back where the wind can't get you, where the rain doesn't blow, where the storm doesn't come, where the trees can't crush you. You know what David had done? David, by choosing, by by pursuing the world, David, by, by running after his lust, by David running after his desires, he had abandoned a fortress for a tarp. And now he's there under this tarp. And he's saying, Lord, I miss the days in which you would uphold me with your right hand. I miss the days in which you were my fortress and my stronghold. And this is where it gets to repentance. Repentance is when you abandon the tarp and run back to the fortress. Run back to the refuge. Run back home, sinner. Run back home. You see, you can't run after sin and remain with God. And you can't remain with sin and run back to God. You've got to decide. You've got to decide. Are you going to stay in the tarp? Or are you going to go home? And I don't want you to miss this. True repentance true repentance changes lives. I'm going to make one point here. If you look in Psalm 51, there's a lot of lives that are changed. First of all, we have David's life. David's life is forever changed. Then David says, he says, if you will will show me mercy, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to become an instructor of mercy. I'm going to become a testimony of mercy to your people. That is, I'm going to go and once when I was the self-righteous judge and would condemn them, I'm going to show them and tell them about the goodness of their God. I'm going to tell them about the, the regeneration that you offer and the restoration that you offer and the rehabilitation that you offer. I'm going to tell them I'm going to be a mouthpiece of your steadfast love, of your abundant mercy, so that other sinners can have the same hope and joy and restoration that I have found. But it doesn't stop there. He says, I'm going to teach others. But then look at verse 18. He says, do good to Zion. I want you to listen up here, Michael, on your ordination day. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices. Why did he talk about the walls of Jerusalem? At this point, the walls had not fallen. He's talking about it metaphorically, symbolically. Because as the king goes, so goes the people. As the daddy goes, so goes the family. As mama and daddy go, so goes the children. Listen, Michael, as the elders and the deacons go, so goes the church. That we have a responsibility to run after God and to repent before God and to confess our sins to God. Because as we go, so goes other people with us. And I want you to hear me. If you've been with us the last three weeks and we've been walking through this trauma in David's life and the sin in David's life. And now we come to this moment of repentance in David's life. What I need you to see, if God has been dealing with your sin at all, is that your repentance could change a lot of lives. Your repentance could change a lot of lives. Your repentance could change your wife's life. Your repentance could change your kid's life. Your repentance could change the life of people in this church. Your your repentance could make a difference in what your family tree looks like two, three, four generations from now. This is not just about you, man. And it is the, the... Proof and evidence of the depth of our own corruption, that in our selfishness we would refuse to repent when it so many other people stand to gain. No, no. Come, come to the Lord, come to the Lord, humble yourself. Get over yourself. Come to the Lord. Come, realize and confess. Own your sin before the Lord. Realize how bad it is. Realize the severity of where you are. Realize what God has offered and that you can't fix it. And come, come to the Lord. This morning, I wonder, I wonder if you're ready finally to deal seriously with your sin. No more PR No more playing games. No more spin. No more walking through Jesus-type spiritual measures just so everybody else feels better in your family. No, you, honest before God, coming and confessing your sins to Him that you might be made new, that their lives might be changed. What I want to do is we're going to have a time of just brief invitation before ordination. I feel like that's necessary this morning. And if you would come right now this morning, I'm going to invite you to come And on the altar in the Bible, what what happened there is people put things to death that their sin would go away. I'm going to ask you to bring your sins to the altar. If you have a wife that you've sinned against, bring her with you. If you have kids that you've sinned against, bring them with you. If you have a brother you've sinned against, bring them with you. Come to the altar and leave it right here. Let's pray to the Lord together.